Okay, now playing California Triathlon Soup. Welcome to another episode of California Triathlon Soup. And this week we have uh, are very lucky to have guest Dave Scott, six-time Ironman world champion with us uh, out of Colorado. Welcome, Dave. Thank you, Tom. It's nice to be here on your uh, show. Well, this is, uh, this is the third show, and uh, we, we like to joke that, that there are probably at least in two dozen people who stumble across it randomly. So, um, of all the things you do this year, we're thinking this will be the, the least, uh, least listened to thing. So feel free to make as many and many mistakes as you want to. I'll try to let it flow smoothly, but fire away. We'll see how we do both of us. Well, no worries. Well, we, we wanted to, uh, a couple of weeks ago, we put out a question to our 4,300 members and, and we wanted to start off right away, just kind of getting some of those questions to you. Um, what most folks may or may not know is that you have been a content machine over the last few years, pumping out uh, training and, and nutritional advice. And sure enough, most of the questions we got were there. Um, so one of the things that just kind of start off with the question is when you are, um, when you are looking to do your training, uh, this is from David. Uh, he had three questions. So what attracted you to become a triathlete? What one tip can you provide to make us better, more efficient triathletes in our training? And then the last one is what one tip is there to overcome the mental aspects of being a triathlete? And I know that's a lot, but Maybe you could start talking about that. Uh, well, I'll start from the top. Why did I become a triathlete? Uh, when I first started, the word wasn't around. Uh, the events weren't called triathlon. They were just called sort of a mixed event. So uh, the vernacular in triathlon wasn't in constant cement. Uh, but I just found it intriguing. I had a, initially a swimming and water polo background. That's what I did in high school and college. And ironically, my swim became my weakest of the, of the three. And I found that I was able to, to pick up running, even though my running, it looks so unsightly. Um, there were times when I could run pretty efficiently <laughs> and I seemed to do okay on the bike. So the first events that I, I ever kind of fell into outside of that swimming round were uh, swim run events, a swim bike event. Uh, there was a, there was an event in Foster city, South of San Francisco in 1976. That was a, um, a swim run event. And I actually thought I'd won the event. And there was this young kid that was there. I didn't even see him. And they said, Oh, this guy, Scott Molina won the event. And Scott was 15 years old at the time. I think we're about seven years different. So I was 22. Um, so it goes way, way, way back. Uh, you know, I was intrigued by it. I seemed to have a good battery to go longer. And, um, when I first heard about the Ironman race in 78, I had already done the Waikiki rough water swim, which is obviously the first leg of, of Ironman. I had competed in a couple of short triathlons. I'll back up a little bit. 76 was my first triathlon in San Francisco. Freezing cold water, no wetsuits. Uh, the order was a, about a 15K. It wasn't 15K, somewhere in that realm. 
no uh, aid stations, no police, <laughs> no one to monitor anything. You put your bikes on the ground, and we start off with this 15K bike, put our bikes back down on the ground, and then the run was second about four miles, and then we jumped in the bay. This was uh, middle of November, right, right near around Thanksgiving, and I think the water was 57 or 56 degrees uh, Fahrenheit then. So that one did intrigue me. I froze to death, but I was kind of used to doing open water swims. Anyway, a long-winded answer. I kind of like the, the uh, unknown in the event. And also the uh, third question that you had, David, was about the mental part of it. I like the mental uh, element of it. You know, I, I can see... My competitors, I didn't really have competitors, but I could see the, my fellow mates that were racing these uh, first events, and I could see them start to wilt a little bit. And I thought, well, you know, are they getting tired or they just have mentally they had enough of this? And so I kind of relished that um, mental aptitude. So the why part, it was very intriguing. The, the mental part, which, which was your third question, um, I think a lot of people re wrestle with the enormity of the uh, race, whether it, they're doing a 70.3 race or they're graduating up to an Ironman race or even their first one, which might be a sprint. And they think about possibly the sum of that total time that they're going to be exercising. And it seems overwhelming. I've always told people to have many, many races with, within the race and always segment that race. So if you have kind of a mental roadmap of, of the, the race itself, and you can look at the maybe the tricky parts or a sharp turn or a, a good climb or a windy section or whatever it may be, and they don't have to be equidistant. Uh, then you've got this mental roadmap, and that allows you to, to make the event palatable in your mind. So, you know, people have asked me, well, Ironman's a long day. And I said, no, it goes by real fast. It's always fast. Um, and I'm not saying that arrogantly. Well, I did it eight hours or something, and someone else who was 16 hours. But I think... If you break it up into pieces, it'll allow you to flow during that event and, and again, not think of the, the sum of, of the long day that you're doing. Uh, you asked for a tip. Well, that was one that I just gave you, but uh, I'm not really sure specifically on, uh, on the tip part of it. I, I, I think a lot of people wrestle with more is better. And they're always thinking, gee, if I go longer, I'm going to be better at this game. And there's a real false notion in that physiologically, just the adaptive nature of the sport. People think if I'm going to get better, I develop better aerobic economy. And, and I've always kind of said, if you, you know, what if I could take a look at your insides when you start? I'm going to chop you open. Those sounds uh, pretty <laughs> gruesome. And I'm going to take a look at your blood volume and your oxidative enzymes and your capillary density and your mitochondria, your energy organelles. Do they all improve with more distance and, and no they don't they actually can decline particularly as you start doing longer distance and you do it kind of hard all the time so we're better off integrating uh, shorter segments higher intensity and, and, and metabolically it's better for your your health it's better for aging and um, in the early years there was a lot of ex experimenting and um, Anyway, that, uh, that tip I think is don't always think when you have more time go longer jack up your intensity a little bit and it'll pay off in the race. Okay. That was a long winded answer. I won't be as long as on the other ones, Tom. No, that, that was great. Um, in, in fact, as part of, uh, doing a little bit of research on, on your first, you know, races, uh, was it John Collins that convinced you to do the first, uh, 140.6? Uh, John wasn't the guy who came up with the flyer. Again, I mentioned I was in, uh, Hawaii 
and had had actually won the Waikiki Roughwater Swim. I, the talent level in that race now is just ferocious. But back in the 70s, I was able to win a couple of the years. Uh, he came up to me after the event was held for the first time in 1978. And, I, you know, I read this flyer, and I, I've told this story many, many times. I thought when I saw this 2.4, 112 miles, 26-mile run, that it was over three days. And... And I, I, you know, I was just completely mystified that, you know, people did this in one day, but also intrigued by it. And I was corrected on it. And, and of course, I had already done a few triathlons that we didn't have a name for them in 76 and 77. So I thought, wow, these people are doing this Ironman race. I've got to do this thing. If you had had um, from a from a goal point of view if they had said it was a three-day event or did it, did it intrigue you that it was a one-day event did it did it kind of make you more inter- interested that it was a one-day event oh absolutely i mean the you know the whole mental part of it was you know people survived this and uh my attitude was it wasn't a survival it was a race because i there were so many unknowns so why why not go as hard as i can <laughs> maybe i can finish before dinner I, you know, I always, I always thought it was going to be a race, and and I think if it was just a three day event, I'm two point four miles of swimming. I had done that hundreds and hundreds of times, if not a thousand times, in, in swim workouts. And um, when I actually heard about the event, I I thought, well, maybe I should try to do a mock triathlon at home. And so I didn't do it in quite the order that it is, swim, bike, run, but I. I did a 100-mile century ride and did it as hard as I could. And, of course, we didn't know anything about uh, fuel or uh, hydration. And then I, I kind of charted out a 20-mile run. And uh, my, my girlfriend at the time, <laughs> I think she was irritated with me because I probably barked at her at one time. And she sort of disappeared in the run. So I did the 20-mile run without any beverage at all. <laughs> and then once I finished the 20-mile run, uh, I said, well, I'm going to go over to the pool. And I, I was coaching at the time, so I opened up the pool and I ended up swimming 5,000, which was kind of excessive, but I've, I've been excessive at times. So I did that big, long day thinking, well, I can do this Ironman thing. That wasn't that tough. But um, And I did my first marathon in September of 79 and ended up going to uh, going to um, Oahu, where it was held the first three years in January of 1980. So, uh, you know, I was naive and green like everyone else, but I didn't want to race it. Yeah, I've never. You know, it's funny the um, the doing the the bike run swim. Um, I, I can imagine. I'm, I'm just thinking about a long course race. Um, it's nine or 10 o'clock at night and, or eight o'clock at night and people are starting to get in their swim and there's cramping. I mean, you see the cramping on a, on a run course. Um, I can't even imagine what that would look like if they had kept that order. I guess that maybe that's why they switched it around. I, who knows? I think it was a good, I think it was a very good idea. We actually held a, a race here in 1981. And, uh, say here when I used to live in uh, Davis, California, and I was aware of this guy down in San Diego, Scott Tinley. <laughs> and Scott Tinley was coming up there, and I was kind of helping out with the race, so I didn't race. I had one Ironman in 1980. But now Scott Tinley, who was a, who was a real athlete, uh, was coming to, to do the event. It happened to be a very cold day in September in Davis, and the swim was on the end. And Scott was a pretty wispy, willowy guy, like he always was, lean, lean guy. <laughs> And I think he was one of many of the athletes when they got to the swim, again, no wetsuits, water's in it, in the high 60s. He was climbing up the vegetation on these nice lots that were lining the lake because, well, I think Scott had a really bad calf cramp along, along <laughs> with a lot of 
those competitors. So they did decide to switch it around. That was probably a good idea. Well, one of the um, one of the things that um, that you have been a big proponent of is not the concept of more training is always better. So you take a different approach, higher quality, maybe higher intensity, shorter sessions. We, we look at having athletes have something that's sustainable. So if you were to look at an athlete who was able to do an Olympic during the year, maybe ramp up to a 70.3 once a year, what would a week in term be like in terms of hours? I mean, athletes are different. You've got three disciplines. You've got all the stuff with core and, you know, keeping flexible. When you coach somebody, um, and for the record, we'll have all the links to Dave's coaching services on, um, on the podcast. When you coach somebody and you say, hey, I, I work 40, 45, 50 hours a week, but I want to do an Olympic. I want to do really well. What would that week look like? Well, I, I think the you know the first thing is everyone's got to look at that forty-five or fifty-hour work week and and put down on a daily basis what's reasonable that I can exercise during this time. That doesn't mean to be excessive, but what what can I do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday? So now you have a little you have a grid and you can say, well, gee, I've got an hour and a half on Monday. I've got forty minutes on Tuesday. And then the second part is is to see well if I'm going to do all three of these disciplines, and you better do it. Uh, can you get in three? disciplines uh, uh, in each week. So three bikes, three runs, and three swims. And I have always mentioned this, and even way back when in the, in the early 80s, I said, you, you, you better be doing some strength training. And I've kind of added, you, you need to make sure that you're maintaining the mobility in your shoulders, your middle of your back, your thoracic spine, your hips. So those are the big three areas, and people have a tendency to lose those in this sport, and they lose them with the aging. So you, you've got to include some mobility exercises and simultaneously keep the flexibility. That's a good trade-off if you can do that big, those big three words, mobility, stretching, and strength, and you do that twice a week. But I, I think people can sit down at night, every single night, and do some form of those three. And so I, I, I generally have people write that down on the counter, but but not necessarily d- denote the days unless they're you know they're they've got a uh, they need to go to the gym to do it, so they're around other people. And I and I get that. Uh, you know, I think when we we look at total time on this. It certainly helps an athlete if they're going to be jumping up to Olympic distance and never had never done anything close to that distance and or 70.3 that they actually, in those two distances, actually go the distance. You know, I, gee, I, I probably should swim a 1500 straight because that swim is that that's what it is in the Olympic distance. I probably should go, you know, roughly 2000 for a 70.3 race. Uh, the, the run is not that critical. And I think a lot of people, when they get extra time on the run biomechanically, they're not as efficient. So I've had a lot of runners do very well on race day, never have run the distance, but are very confident running somewhere between 10 and 11 miles. So you're, you're taking off 20 to 25% of the total distance on, on the run. The bike is fairly easy, 90 K or 56 miles. I, I think, yes, that's a, that's a good idea. Uh, Tom, your question on total, total time uh, there's a lot of athletes that have done extremely well on anywhere between about 10 to 12 and a half hours a week. 
So you really got to be finite with your uh, program. If you have nine sessions per week and you're doing a little bit of strength training, that's in your hourly allotment. Uh, you, a lot of the sessions you've got to you know pare them down. They might be thirty to forty minute sessions, and that's it. And that some will add up pretty darn quickly. Um, I've had uh, Ironman athletes do well, very well, on twelve to sixteen hours a week. Time, again, is not that vital, but it, it obviously varies uh, with each athlete and you know what their, what their background is. When athletes have asked me, should I go longer on the weekend and skip my mobility, stretching, and strength? I'm just going to skip it entirely. I'm only doing it once a week. I say, no, don't do that. Go shorter and do both. So I'm really steadfast on this, and I think you know the, the single biggest cursor for, for aging is loss of lean muscle mass. And you see a lot of athletes that are in the sport, both both genders that are, you know, what, what I term are skinny fat. Uh, we see them, you know, they, they look very thin, but they have they've lost their they've lost their muscle mass, and so they've whittled their body down, and consequently they're very vulnerable for injury. But they're also their performance parameters are going to be negated. So uh, I don't like to see that. I would rather see someone who's maybe two or four or five pounds a little bit heavier. And uh, they're not doing as much aerobic training. And again, you, you can rev your engine up uh, at a higher work rate if you're including even small segments of this, you know, what I call a little bit higher output or higher intensity by doing strength training and or implementing that in your, in your workouts. You get a huge post-metabolic burn. In other words, you've revved your engine up, so you're burning calories post-exercise. And, and a lot of people that are trying to lose that little bit of uh, fat, uh, by doing that, you're going to be more economical. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, Tom, but uh, you not only answered that question, you actually answered uh, a later question. So, you know, that's, that's perfect. And, and I'll definitely say this, we've been doing for eight years, we've been doing brick sessions, 30 sessions a, a year, uh, every Wednesday from say March to October at the Rose bowl, um, which is a great venue. And, We'll do, you know, different workouts, but maybe it's a three mile bike and a half a mile run. And by the middle of the summer, if we do bike run, bike run, bike run, just to practice transitions and get the brick feeling in folks legs, they start to adapt to it. As soon as we start throwing in bike uh, plank or, or bike uh, lunge or, or star jump run, it there many of the athletes fall apart it's it's pretty comical uh because as you said they're just they're straight line athletes and as soon as we start attacking their core you know they're done yeah no it's that's great you're doing that I and mean, the short little segments sound ideal and and adding that component to it while other people are looking on and then seeing whether or not they're uh their ability to sustain their output as as they get a little fatigued you know, probably you're probably seeing a pretty dramatic fall off, and and a lot of a lot of the athletes, even the very best ones, uh, and, and you know, I was very fortunate to um, to advise Craig Alexander and coach Chrissy Wellington, you know, full time, and I had Julie Dibbins at one time and Rachel Joyce, and you know, not to throw out big names, but I learned by these athletes. My point in pointing them out is uh, both Craig and Chrissy were. Uh, were very asymmetrical. They had one dominant side still, still do to this day to some degree. And, um, 
their uh, glutes on their left side were very, very weak. And, you know, I could show them some simple exercises. We'll fire that glute and put your hand on it. And, and it was like a bowl of butter. And I said, wow, you're a pretty good athlete, but feel that glute. It's just, as, it's like a jellyfish. So, uh, you know, being great athletes, that, that comment didn't resonate very well with them. <laughs> they said, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to listen to what you're going to say. And I want to make that other glute as equal to the, the opposite side. And they, and they both did. So, you know, I think even when we look at the best athletes, we find a lot of issues with, um, with balance and stability. And, and we can talk about the core. The core really is stabilizing your spine, but it allows you to generate power out of your, out of your glutes and, and really that whole kinetic chain up and down to your feet, to your shoulders. So core training, yes, is, is big and, and I think you need to look very closely at the exercise. So you're not just doing the major muscle exercise. And I like a lot of them, I like a lot of the Olympic lifts, but a lot of the triathletes need to start with a real basic rudimentary ones just to get the fire. So, so if I have two glutes that are, uh, uh, made of butter, is that better than just one glute made of butter? <laughs> well, you're a bad case, Tom. Huh? I mean, I'm, I'm at least uh, balanced, right? Yeah, dreadfully <laughs> balanced. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, there, there's some simple little exercises, and people say, "Well, what, you know, what's a glute exercise?" And you know, you can Google this and you can see a thousand different permutations. And this is not necessarily the best one, but you get great EMG activity in the in the glute. You get good muscle firing pattern by doing a supine bridge. So it's just like, you know, you're doing a bent knee sit up, but there's a lot of nuances to doing this properly. And I'm just going to tell your listeners, because I think everyone should try this. You, you have a bent knee, you're lying, lying on your back, your arms are at a T, palm, palms are up. You have to look at the spacing of your feet and they should be about two inches apart, similar to what you would be doing when you're running. And you have to look at your knees and, and keep your knees same distance, roughly inch and a half to two inches apart. As you press up and I'm pretty graphic you want to squeeze your crack first and as you push up with your pelvis you want to bring the pressure on the medial side of your foot so on the inside of your foot about 90% of the people will push out towards a little toe their knees will flare out their their rectus femoris their quad and their IT band and the peroneals on the lower leg will start to fire. And that's what happens when they run. They're on that lateral side, but, but their glute and their vastus medialis will bleed the muscle on the inside of the knee. That one doesn't want to fire. If they keep the pressure on the inside of the uh, foot, they'll feel that on, the, on their glute. And that glute will start to sting. So they come all, all the way up, bring their pelvis up, keep the knees together, pressure on the inside lower themselves down. And as they get stronger, they can just lift one foot off the ground and see if they can attain the same height as they did on, on a double. So they can do six to 12 reps of a double and then, you know, try four or five on a single and see if they can stay up. And they'll generally find that they've got one side that sags. It's pretty easy. And you can also just take your hand and put your hand on your glute and say, wow, am I, am I firing this? So that's a quick cue on it. We'll, uh, we'll find, video. hopefully we'll, we'll find uh, a video. That, that is great advice. Uh, and thank you. Um, in terms of uh, w- one of the things that is, I guess, beginner triathletes um, to, to kind of talk about nutrition. If you're out doing a, a sprint, it's opinion is, is if you're going to do a, maybe an hour of racing, uh, nutrition isn't really as relevant, but as you get, longer distances and obviously in the long course 
it, it, it's the whole game. Would you, uh, I, I mean, this is a longer conversation, but would you talk a little bit about approach to nutrition? We have a lot of athletes who experience cramping GI issues, uh, it, you know, their calves are, are cramping. They can't fire anymore. They can't put food down anymore. Uh, what's, what's some of the advice that you have in general terms? I mean, it's such a big category in terms of race day nutrition and also how to, how to prepare for, um, you know, when you're training, you know, how do you consume to, so that you're ready for race day? Wow, I mean, this is a this is a massive topic. I'll just touch on it because we need to do another podcast on the on the whole topic of nutrition. I'll, I'll first say that um, you know I take great pride in trying to understand all the science on my backgrounds in physiology. So I think, gee, I'm uh, I'm ahead of the game. And and for years and years and years, like a lot of folks that really have a, a national international published rep, reputation, we kind of looked at one facet. And the facet is, is that we know carbohydrates work well, but we didn't really look at fat a- adaptation and oxidizing fats and, and increasing the amount of healthy fats that we're eating as opposed to increasing our carbohydrates. The carbohydrates have an inflammatory response. And so, Tom, what you're talking about where people have a lot of GI distress is that a lot of times they put this bolus of, of different carbohydrates, whether it's fluid replacement drink and gels and gummy bears and waffles and everything else that we have on the market. And the sort of the same mantra as I was talking about with training, more is not better. And a lot of them will think, gee, I've got a long race, so therefore I've got to eat a lot and I've got to really stuff the calories down. So I'm going to make this kind of simple on just my advice for this podcast uh first off more is not more is not better and i have some steadfast rules uh in in racing don't change your diet that's number one from what you've done also look at like workouts um and like intensity and what are you actually drinking and consuming almost 80 percent 90 percent of the people that i speak to will always take in more on race day and i say why uh, and, and usually I'm talking to someone because they have GI distress. So w- why do you do that? I, I think it's a nervousness that people have. Um, quite often less is better because we have a lot of stored calories and muscle, liver glycogen, uh, free fatty acids, whether you're carbohydrate adapted or not. If you're not taking as much, you're going to start accessing free fatty acids. And, and assuming that your metabolic is starting to shift oxidized fats a little bit more, the last thing you want to do is stuff in carbohydrates every five minutes. So that's where a lot of people you know, get in trouble is they set themselves up. The second thing is that we don't need to load up on electrolytes nor water the day before the race or the morning of the race. Uh, and I've said this before. We're not, we're not camels. We can't store an infinite amount of, of electrolytes that throws off our salt potassium pump on the inside and the outside of the cell and uh, throws off magnesium as, as well. We have a tendency, if we're carb-adapted, to retain a lot of water, which makes you feel real puffy and, and stiff, and you want to release some of that water. So I gave a lot of advice. Uh, eat those carbohydrates. Um, you know, Be careful, as I just advised everyone of this <laughs> with my tone. But I didn't really talk about eating a higher healthy fat, and, and there's compelling evidence for a long, long time. It's not pseudoscience. Uh, I have a huge list. I talk about it this at my Four Seasons camps in, in great de- detail, and I talk about it on my website. 
And, and I've been lambasted along with a lot of other people and rightfully, rightfully so. But I think if we have a closed mind to good science out there, and there are some scientists that uh, Jeff Volick and Steve Finney and Dom Diagostino, those are three that, that I follow among many. And, and if your readers would like a list, I can share this or send it to you, Tom, and you can post it. I also have, you know, books and references that I'd be that glad be to great. share with your listeners. I think, yeah, I think it would be, be, be helpful. So uh, the other rule I have in racing is when you get out of the T1, uh, don't stop at the buffet table there. Keep going. Even though you burn calories on the swim, uh, you want to get out on the bike and allow your body to reach equilibrium. And, and equilibrium is allow your heart rate to come up to the workload, allow your breathing rate to come up, allow yourself to lose some of those stored water that you have. That's a good thing. And then it's sort of a steadfast rule. And obviously it depends on uh, the size of an individual or training background, the environmental conditions outside, but 15 to 20 minutes into the bike, that's when you start introducing uh, possibly the fluid replacement drink or a little, or a little bit of water. So, uh, you know, I've always whittled people's total caloric intake down if they're becoming more fat adapted and they're oxidizing fat and they, they're actually producing ketone bodies, the fat, ox, fat oxidation rates are, are quite high. And, and I will mention this. If you have GI distress, you should do it for healthy reasons first. Performance-wise, it's very, very effective. And you'll be taking in about 50 to 80% less calories if you're fat adapted as opposed to what you're doing when you're carb adapted. And again, the carbs have created this GI mess that a lot of athletes have. Uh, and we really want to try to cut that back first off before you think, gee, I'm not going to listen to Dave Scott and do this healthy fat thing. Uh, well, all right, listen to one thing, cut back. That's great advice. And, in, you, might you know, feel better. our team, uh, as of this year, our team is working, uh, is going to be using myoplex, uh, from EAS, uh, manufactured by Abbott, you know, billion dollar company, we're relatively new uh, to Myoplex, but but you're no stranger to it. Um, can you tell us why uh, you got involved with Myoplex and why that product in particular is better than other products that you've seen out on course? I think they're they were willing to listen, not 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 necessarily to the mandate that I was laying down, but they have internal people that. Uh, we're kind of looking at the efficacy of their products and saying, you know, we really want to also cater to the endurance athlete as well. And is the marketplace saturated with the proper products or, or can we introduce something that's better? And I think collectively, um, you know, I, I have had some input and they have great personnel. And so they, they have this Myoplex line with um, some great products. You know, they're, they're not putting a lot of the, additive, the additives in it. They're using uh, Stevie as, as the sweetener in there. Uh, one of the products that I really like is the one called Hydrate. And they have a nice balance between sodium and potassium, uh, again, on the inside and the outside of the cell. And, and that has to be mo modulated. So they've you know, kind of looked at, at research uh, and making sure that they've included this. The amount of carbohydrate in hydrate is very, very low. So per my comments before, people are having an issue. They still are getting some carbohydrate, but at a very small amount, much, much, much less than a gel or fluid replacement drink uh, by volume. Uh, they also have a product called Recover and uh, very, a lot of good data on the branch chain amino acids. One's called L-leucine and, and the byproduct of, uh, of leucine 
basically in a concentrated form and a simplified abbreviation is called HMV and HMV is added in its recovery product. So it enhances um, protein synthesis, which is a, which is a real plus simple language allows you to recover faster. Hence, hence the name, the first product that they had is a keto powder. So if you're hedging towards, um, nutritional ketosis where you are going to higher healthy fat in your daily diet and that's about 70 percent of your daily diet is higher healthy fat very low carbohydrate or net carb that doesn't mean no carbs because you can eat i have this enormous list and be glad to share it with you of a food list that of carbohydrates that are very good carbs because they they have a higher fiber content so think of all the green ones most of the green ones are pretty darn good for you um this particular product, the keto powder with uh, with Myoplex, I they've positioned it and they'd probably slap my hand for saying this, but I, I think it's a great product actually for the athlete while they're training and racing if they've made this keto adaptation because it, it parallels what their intake should be. The volume amount of it, again, when you're racing, as I said, will be a lot less. So you put this in your water bottle and off you go, and you could add a hydrate as well uh, during your training session. So, you know, I think they've got good, some good lines. We're looking at a few other products, which I can't unveil right now, but uh, hopefully we're going to be able to complement the athlete that is interested in, in oxidizing fats and also being a little bit healthier at, and not living on carbohydrates. Yeah, I, I, um, we had started talking to them three, four years ago. And they probably weren't ready for, you know, like uh, retail in terms of you know, having, you know, single servings and getting the product out and all that good stuff. And it seems like they've really, really figured that out. I get questions all the time from, from our athletes that said, well, you know, I want to train with what's on course. And I always say, well, you better make sure whatever's on course works for you. Otherwise you better bring something else in. And one of the comments that that stuck to me was we'd have an athlete that say, well, this is what's, you know, brand X is on course. Um, so, you know, race wouldn't put that on course unless it was good for me. And I would say, well, on that same course, you're going to find Red Bull. And I would never recommend Red Bull for any athlete just because somebody right. wrote a check doesn't necessarily mean that that's product that you should consume or that it's good for you. Um, yeah. And that, that parallels a lot of the research, too, that's done is, you know, the, the pharmaceutical companies, the seed companies uh, have a lot have a lot of money. And so a lot, a lot of the information that is disseminated out to all of us and therefore the carbohydrates are what you should be taking in. Um, that's been sort of perpetuated by this big money wheel. And, you know, I think, again, when athletes are making this shift in their diet they're not going to have to carry as much they're not going to be consuming as much and they're going to be efficient through the whole race so uh i've i've experimented well before i was with the eas on you know what i can take in and not in a carbohydrate form you know can i make a nut butter and it and that you know that works fairly well you know i actually have nut butter on a daily basis and i have a lot of nuts too we put macadamia almond walnuts um, uh, uh, coconut oil and you can pulverize that uh, you don't have to be a, sh uh, a chef and <laughs> allow yourself to you know create these concoctions but they work they work pretty well while you're exercising again if you're if you're fat fat adapted and you just nibble on these so i make these little nut balls put them in a, in a 
um, foil and then put them like in a bento box and then you have them on your bike. So I think there's, there's ways EAS is obviously looking at how we can mass produce these and make them pretty simple, uh, for the consumer. But there, I think there are other, other easy ways for the athlete to make this adaptation. Well, I'm going to, uh, shift, uh, because I know, uh, I know your time is, is, is valuable. Um, I wanted to shift and ask you a question, about um, racing in 1994, um, you were 40. Um, I think it was an 8:24 time at 40. And f- from what I've heard, that was one of your one of the races you were most proud of. Um, do you, Do you have a couple minutes just to talk about that race in '94? Sure, I got I got plenty of time, Tom. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was a um, for me, it was a five-year hiatus from uh, racing Ironman and race Mark in '89 race, and uh, I, my two boys were born during that time time block. Ryan '89, he was actually there in the '89 race, and then Drew in 1990, and I was kind of preoccupied with that, and also wrestling with some injuries. But I still had this uh, nagging desire to go back again, and uh, actually, Dave McGilvery, a close friend and uh, director of the Boston Marathon. Uh, and also Ironman athlete, uh, said, you got to do this, Dave, you, you know, you, I, I know you're quietly thinking about it. So late 38 years old, he said, why don't you do it when you're 40? And that was, that's all I needed. So I came back, uh, when I was 40 and, um, yeah, it was, a, you know, it was a, a fun day. You know, was it the best day? No, that darn Aussie Greg Welch beat me, but, uh, <laughs> you know, all I could see were those really low hanging swim shorts that I said, well, those are the most ill-fitting things. And he was about 20 seconds ahead of me for most of the time on the run. And I, uh, you know, I felt good, got it down to about 11 seconds in the energy lab. And I just kind of felt, ran out of gas and I, uh, coming back up and, you know, I, when I think about that race, I said, wow, that just gave him the psychological seed that sent him to the moon. And, uh, he was floating the, you know, the last six plus miles coming in, but yeah, it was a great day for me. It was a fun, you know, a fun day. And I, um, I went into it with a kind of a quiet confidence, but I hadn't raced for five years. So, you know, I didn't really know where I actually stood. I knew my fitness had come up uh, as I was preparing through the summer. And I just felt like, well, I'm getting stronger and stronger. I wish I had another month because everything was a green light. So on race day, I kind of had an open-ended slate. Like, I, I'm going to do well, but I don't know how well. And, you know, it turned out pretty good. You had mentioned um, you had mentioned that, you know, when you're talking about the, the kids and that five year break, I, I will tell you every time that I race long course, there's definitely a point during the run that, you know, I'm thinking about something that that gets me, you know, emotional and I allow myself about I don't know, a minute, 30 seconds to think about it. I'm like, wait a second, I don't have time for this. I I got to really focus it on the race. It, what are you thinking about? Do you, do you, do you, what are you thinking about when you're racing during those times? I actually, I think that's okay, Tom. I, I think it's, uh, you know, your mind wanders gen- generally on sometimes some funny things, uh, sim- simple items. You may see something on the course, which, which I did when I've raced, you know, I was actually, I, you know, I'd see one of the hula dancers or something on the course. I think, well, that's, that's great. Uh, or I, you know, I'd see a family or, you know, something that would just kind of catch my eye and obviously bring it back to uh, maybe home. But, uh, you know, I I think when people are just concentrating on their 
form and the, the yellow line that's on the road, I think that's a mistake. And um, uh, at the same time, when you have this discomfort, you can't run away from it. And I, and I think people say, well, I'm going to disassociate myself from that, from that discomfort. And I said, that, that's baloney that it doesn't work that way. I, and everyone goes through a, through a race and I, you know, in 94 that you were talking about races, all the races that, you know, I did well in or was able to win. I had real bad patches in all of those races and you just kind of bring it down to a small little sphere where you say, gee, I just got to think about my breathing, I'll relax. You know, I may have a flowing or fleeting thought about, you know, my kids at the time, but I'm only going to get to that uh, tree that's up ahead. It's 200 yards away and I'm going to smooth it out. I'm going to calm myself down and get back to my rhythm. But I'm, I'm allowing these quick thoughts to kind of flow in and out. And, and once you get to that tree, you think, okay, I feel, feel better. And I, then you, you look ahead and all of a sudden, uh, you know, that tree might've been an eighth of a mile. Now you're looking a half a mile ahead and of course, the best feeling is, is when you're kind of in that rhythm where the miles or kilometers just tick by and all of a sudden you're well ahead of your game. You say, gee, what happened? I feel great. And I'm already three quarters away through the event. That, that's exactly right. And I, I will tell you, I look back at uh, some of my favorite you know, memories. Hopefully there's many memories to come. But one of my favorite memories is, you know, my daughter's at the side of the road and, you, you know, I'm not winning an Olympic gold medal. I'm not winning uh, the race. And, you know, you stop and you take that picture with your, at the time, I think, you know, nine-year-old, 10-year-old. And I can tell you, every time that thing comes up on my screen, I, I'm not, the picture comes up on the screen. I'm not unhappy that I stopped that day and took a picture with my 10-year-old. Probably not. It probably knocked off a, a lot of minutes on your race. Yeah, I, I had the same, same moment when my uh, first one was born. And this was 89. I was racing Mark. And we were on Lee Drive. And my wife at the time, I said, could you? bring out Ryan. I'd, you know, I guess I'd like to see her as well, but I was really interested in my son. <laughs> and so she comes out and Mark and I are moving along at a pretty good clip. We're, we're running six minute pace along the driver slightly faster. And she comes out with Ryan and, um, and uh, her name is Anna. Anna's athletic and she's got Ryan in her arms and she's kind of running side by side <laughs> next to us and Ryan's head's like a bobble doll. It's going all over the place. I think, well, that's not a good idea, but it sure energized me. I thought, wow, this is awesome. You know, keep running with me. And Mark, Mark, and I didn't really talk about that race for about 10 years, but he did mention that moment. He said, well, you really picked up the pace and I was unaware of it, but I'm sure I did. Oh, that's great. Well, um, in terms of, uh, you know, to think about Kona, um, I look back and, um, it's 80, 1982, you had to race twice in a year, correct? That's correct. Um, yeah, they shifted, shifted the event that year. Yeah, so having to train, you know, at that level twice uh, in one year, uh, how was that different than, say, the other years that you raced, or was it no big deal? It was just another race. Uh, I don't think it was a big deal. I, you know, I think we were, at least in the Northern Hemisphere, we were overjoyed that <laughs> it was going to be in the warmer part of the year, not January uh, as I did my first race in 1980. So, you know, to me, it was just another opportunity to race. And I had, I had come into the two, it was actually February of 82, the, the first, first race. And I was, it didn't, re, didn't run for six weeks until I got on the plane a week before the race. And that was the first time in six weeks. So I was a little bit, uh, lame going into that February race. And now I had a chance for re- redemption, you know, nine months later. And, um, 
you know, I, I don't think we thought twice about it. The athletes that were repeating, uh, later on, there was a, an Ironman series and, course a lot of my competitors including scott tinley said oh boy we get to do you know four or five ironman a year and i thought well this is a bit excessive uh and and i said you know go ahead and do that I, come october you're going to be shattered and, and that was kind of the case that it, you know again it was it was way too much but two in one year i i think is uh and having the space and it wasn't an issue it, it is i think a an issue in today's time where athletes are chasing the points and have to and they're they're really uh relegated or obligated to um race when they're not ready to race and the potential for an injury is is heightened and and i, and I think it's a mistake and I, I you know i wish the qualifying standards the criteria was a little bit different. I don't have the answer on it, but I, I certainly don't think a world champion needs to validate that they're a world champion by doing another Ironman race. I think that it potentially just lowers the ability level or potential ability level come October when you want everyone to race at their peak. Well, that, that actually brings us to a question from Mark Keskis, who's uh, in Michigan, uh, up there in the mitten state, as he likes to call it. He, he asks, what trend in triathlon would you like to see go away? Oh, wow. That's a, that's a big one. Uh, I, I think the, certainly here in the States, it's, it's become kind of an elitist sport because it's so cost prohibitive. And uh, is it a liability issue that um, we're having to pay extraordinary fees or is it because the race director and uh, everyone else has to, you know, get road closures and pay the city or whatever. I don't really know the economics of it, but what I do know is the bottom line is pretty darn expensive. And I think when people look at the outside to travel to an event and pop, you know, buy the super duper equipment, uh, pay the entry fee. Wow. It's a lofty ticket. That's hard. And, um, you go to other countries, for example, Australia, uh, some of the European countries, where they have club programs and similar to what you're doing, Tom, is they're, they're able to do these kind of mini events, which I, I think really satiate and fulfill, you know, some of the desire and the passion that people have, but it gives them the opportunity. And conversely, I'd like to see it where, you know, you have a major event that somehow is manageable financially for people to attend. And, and again, you know, I'm sure people on the outside that are hearing this are saying, you know, Dave Scott, you have no idea about the economics of, of putting on an event. Well, I, I have a little bit of insight, and I know they're, they are very costly. So I, I guess if I could change that, I, I'd love to wave my magic wand. Well, considering our mission statement is something about affordable, accessible, and sustainable, um, you know, I, I, I'm definitely sitting there with a big spoon eating that up. We actually have a race. Um, we started three years ago. It'll be our fourth year this year. Uh, we did it sort of as a can we do it uh, type of uh, initiative in Los Angeles. It's called Trick or Try. It's in October the 27th. For um, I'm pretty sure I can get you a, a comp entry. Um, and, <laughs> and it's... You know, it's, it's a, you know, we, we start off and the pricing is $50 for a sprint and $75 for an Olympic and $100 for a 70.3. And it's in Los Angeles. It's on a closed course and Miller Coors provides a beer garden afterwards. And then every month from March all the way until October, we do a three hour clinic and get new people in the water um, and on the bike and the run. 
And, um, you know, things like, you know, a relay is $75 and, um, you know, the Olympics 75 for an individual and the relay 75 for an individual. So when I go back and I say, you know, you know, know, think about that Olympic relay, that's, you know, three medals, three bibs, three shirts, uh, with the, the beer garden, six beers, uh, and a USAT certified close course race. You know, Los Angeles definitely has a solution for 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 racing. And there's other races out there like that that make it, you know, affordable and accessible. I, I saw some data uh, from USAT, which was I think about one hundred forty thousand dollars is the average household income, which is double that of the national uh, household income. And I think I saw some data from WTC and their average household income for was $247,000, which is top 2%. And so when, when folks, um, we had Rocky Harris on our first, first show and Rocky is great. Um, and he's doing the, my time to try initiative. Our experiences is that people are leaving the sport due to two things and that's cost and it's due to time. And so that's really what we try to tackle. Yeah, it's great. Well, it's awesome you're able to put those on. And, uh, I mean, your, your fee is, uh, you know, golden light for modeling, you know, other events in other cities and, and other states. I hope, you know, I hope people can kind of look at what you're doing and replicate it. And Dave, and, and Dave we, we uh, just to, as a point, it was, uh, it sold out. You know, we had uh, 825 participants and we'll have over a thousand this year. And, um, anyway, but that was it. Um, one, one other thing you actually mentioned, uh, you actually mentioned, uh, when, when the swim, I was at ITU Leeds last year in June and, uh, I actually had a family vacation and just so happens we were over there at the same time. My wife doesn't believe that, but that's the truth. And I said, Hey, let's, let's go to Leeds and do this race. And I didn't want to lug around a wetsuit for for two weeks because, you know, you know, I limited packing. I showed up to this race thinking, you know, I just, you know, I'll just grit it out for 30 minutes. It'll be okay. Mm. And unfortunately, fortunate or unfortunate, I think actually, fortunately, they said at packet pickup, they're like, no wetsuits required. Um, and, and, and by that way, that, that race was incredibly affordable. I think it was like 80, 80, 80 pounds or something like that. It was, it was amazing. And so I started scrambling for a wetsuit and I found Hoob wetsuit there. I found Ellie Jackson, who's Dean Jackson's daughter at the expo. And I walked up and said, can you rent, borrow, beg, steal a wetsuit? And they gave me a wetsuit. It's the first time I had tried a Hoob wetsuit was last June. Um, and I, you know, I wanted to be competitive with the Brownlee brothers. So, you know, I, I only, there you are only, yeah, I only wanted the best. I put the wetsuit on, I swam, I liked the bike more. I got into transition. I took off the wetsuit and as I'm taking it off, it just falls off. You know, I didn't have to wrestle it. Uh, for the first time I had ever tried a wetsuit. I hadn't, didn't have to wrestle it. And I said in my head, that'll be, you know, I'll, I'll be using hoop wetsuits. I think for the rest of my life, if they keep making it like this now, they are, they are now a, a sponsor of our team. Um, and I, I know that you have a connection with them. Again, it's one of those things where you've had a long time connection with them. Can you tell us a little bit about why you uh, are associated so strongly associated with Hoob? 
Well, I didn't know anything about him at, at the time, and, and Hoob is actually a, a real guy, and he's a his expertise is in uh, fluid dynamics, so one, one area, but he's, they've looked at how the uh, flow is with the uh, with the water and the athlete in the water and the buoyancy of the athlete and the buoyancy of the product. So, you know, they kind of looked at it from a real scientific and technological uh, arena to say, you know, we can change the paneling on this or we can alter it. So not to sound too gobbledygooky or, or too promotional sounded, but I think they started out with the wetsuits and they had a pretty provocative line that was very functional and efficient. You know, as you said, it just slides right off your ankles. Uh, from there, we started the Dave Scott line. So I had a little line with, with Hoob and uh, we kind of said we want to have a, a, all the bells and whistles. We want to make sure that we're not leaving anything out. And so the Dave Scott try suit has been number one over there. It's kind of won all the awards in the last couple of years, and, and it's a you know it's a great functional and fitting suit. And uh, I like giving input on it, and you know we kind of tweak it every year. And so there's there's different skews around that in the Dave Scott line, which you know I'm pretty happy about. And we have it here in the states, which is a a, a cool thing. It took us a while to get it here, but it's um, it's moving around the country now. Well, we appreciate it. Well, I just wanted to say thank you for the uh, on behalf of the 4,300 people of of California Triathlon and at least the maybe now it'll be three dozen people that uh, actually listen to this podcast. Um, thank you so much, and we will make sure to get a couple of the 23 ounce. Uh, California Triathlon suit mugs out to you and Susan, uh, your assistant, um, so that uh, you you will be able to enjoy some some soup goodness over over uh, your season. <laughs>